Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone and welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. Today I'll be interviewing Amber Valentino about her paper, Overcoming Barriers to Applied Research, A Guide for Practitioners. Amber has a doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. She completed a pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral fellowship at Marcus Autism Center slash Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia. After completion of her postdoctoral training, she remained at the Marcus Autism Center, serving as program coordinator of a community autism parent training program and as a senior psychologist in a language and learning clinic. In 2012, she transitioned to Trumpet Behavioral Health, where she has held various leadership positions. Currently, Amber serves as the Chief Clinical Officer for Trumpet Behavioral Health. In this role, she supports clinical services, leads all research and training initiatives, and builds clinical standards for the organization. Her primary clinical and research interests include the assessment and treatment of verbal behavior, primarily in children with autism. She is also interested in the evaluation of programming to address unique adaptive skill deficits and in developing standards for effective supervision in the field. Amber currently serves as an associate editor for Behavior Analysis and Practice, shout out to that, and previously served as an associate editor for the Analysis of Verbal Behavior. She is currently on the editorial board for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and serves as frequent guest reviewer for several behavior analytic journals. She's an active board member of CalABA and several other professional organizations. The paper that we'll be speaking with Amber about today is a survey study aimed at identifying specific barriers that practitioners face when conducting research. The paper goes into the results of the survey and also recommendations on how to overcome some of those barriers. It's a really interesting paper. It was a fun interview to conduct. So without further ado, here is my interview with Amber Valentino. Hi, Amber. Thanks for joining us on the Batcast today. We're really excited to hear about your article, Overcoming Barriers to Applied Research, a Guide for Practitioners. Absolutely. Hi, Cody. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're super excited to have you. We were kind of talking about this a little before we started recording, but this paper, I think, perfectly exemplifies what this podcast is all about, which is identifying really that research to practice gap. And I want to have a conversation about that sort of term in and of itself, but identifying that and figuring out ways to break that down and to make research more usable for practitioners and and ultimately enable them to do more research. And so this is a really, really exciting article for us to have on this podcast today. That's great. Yeah, I'm excited. I, um, as we were chatting about before the podcast started, um, this has become a very popular topic. And I uh, historically have, well, in early in my career, been invited to talk about verbal behavior and then uh, topics shifted to really be heavily focused on supervision. Uh, but more recently, this has been the most common requested topic um, for me to present on is um, just how to conduct research as a practitioner and overcome um, the barriers associated with doing so. So I'm excited to share this with the rest of the BAP community. Well, I think that that sort of request to have you speak about these things at conferences and other places, I think it just shows what a big deal it is in our field. 
And I don't want to give too much away about the article, but you, you know, before we, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you talk about just the sheer number of clinicians that are in our field now and how many of them just aren't equipped or have the resources to, to do things like research. And so really, really important topic, very much so in line with the scope of this podcast. So we're thrilled to have you. And before we jump fully into the paper, I'd like to start these interviews just by getting to know the researcher, the authors of the work a little bit for the reason that I think a lot of people listening are, are often clinicians, maybe some of them are in grad school or maybe even in academia, but to be able to sort of see the type of people who are ultimately writing some of these papers and see that it's not just academics, it's not just researchers, that ultimately the papers we're seeing in behavior analysis and practice, the journal, are coming from a lot of different sources and a lot of different experiences. And so with that, could you tell us a little bit about your, your current role and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the chief clinical officer for Trumpet Behavioral Health. Um, we are a mid-sized ABA provider located in seven different states uh, across um, the country. And we provide services primarily to children with autism uh, in both homes and centers. Uh, I've been uh, with Trumpet for, gosh, it, I, I said this the other day and I couldn't believe it, but uh, going on nine years now. Wow. So I've been with the organization for a really long time uh, and it's just, it's just fantastic. And and I'm loving, I'm loving this role. I've been in it for a little over two years now, and it's just, it's exciting uh, to be able to reach so many uh, children and to support so many uh, BCBAs across the country, helping to make their lives better. And what originally led you to Trumpet? Oh, Linda LeBlanc. <laughs> Um, I was working at the Marcus Autism Center in Atlanta, Georgia for several years. That's where I did my uh, pre-doc and post-doc. And then um, I stayed on for a couple of years after that. I think I was there for a total of five years. It was a great experience, super, super foundational um, skill set developed, uh, really, really enjoyed my time. And I was just looking for a change. And at, at the time I heard Linda was leaving academia and going in to work for this company called Trumpet. And I said, well, that sounds kind of interesting and had a little little phone conversation with her. Uh, she and I knew each other from some lab work uh, that we had done, uh, collaborative lab work between um, uh, Auburn and, uh, and Marcus. And so she knew me a little bit. Uh, we had a conversation and uh, she said, well, come out to California. And my first response was no way. Um, but here I am nine years later in California. So she was a huge, huge draw. And uh, uh, really one of the people who started the research culture at Trumpet that I've been fortunate enough to be able to maintain after um, she, she left. So, And so are you coming into Trumpet with the idea that there was going to be clinical work, I'm sure, but also some, some research opportunities and things like that? So that's a great question. So when I joined Trumpet, I really thought my career as a researcher was going to end. Um, it was, uh, I took a, a job as a senior clinician, which is sort of a mid-level manager. So I had a part-time caseload and a part-time um, supervision, you know, management caseload. And I was okay with that. I thought, you know, I've done a lot, a decent amount of research at Marcus. It was fun, but I, I always knew I wanted to work with families and I wanted to be a practitioner. And so I just transitioned and said, let's go do practice. And, you know, of course, Linda had these wonderful opportunities. She had labs, she had research clubs, she had journal clubs. And I said, you know, I'd like to be a part of some of those. And so I started attending just to learn and then um, the research director at the time went on maternity leave and I said, I'll, I'll help. Let me help while she's out. And, and that was it. I was, I was hooked. And it was, it was a pivotal time for me, though, because the research that I was doing at Trumpet was very different than the research mm. I was doing at Marcus. Um, at Marcus, things were very controlled. You had a lot of um, ability to just manipulate variables, control for variables, and uh, it was much more like lab work, like controlled lab work. Whereas at Trumpet, you know, we were out in the field, we were in people's homes and there's very little control over right. how much that happens. But I think what that experience showed me and what Linda showed me was you, you can do research in practice and yeah, it's a little messy, but you just have to be able to embrace that and describe it. Uh, and that is a great contribution to the field as well. So I Absolutely. latched on and, um, and then there were years, uh, uh, in Trumpet where research was a, a small part of my, um, my, my job, but it's never been a focus. 
focus. It's been, mm-hmm. this is something you're interested in, uh, keep doing it, but you do also have a full-time job. So don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of that, I, I can only imagine that as a chief clinical officer, your sort of workload and, and responsibilities have to be quite overwhelming to, to most normal humans. And so given that, how do you find that balance to be able to add contributions to our field like this paper? Oh, I love this question. So uh, if I can give some advice to the listeners, um, I, <laughs> I have it. So there's two books, uh, one that I read many years ago and one recently that have had that have been really impactful on my ability to continue to maintain research productivity while having a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, and I reference it in the article, it's called How to Write a Lot by Paul Sylvia. Um, this is a book that actually my co-author recommended to me, Jessica Wanico, and it is written by a psychologist who um, primarily focuses on academics, but he just talks about some really simple things that behavior analysts will truly get when they read the book. And that is that you have to dedicate time to research. You have to treat it like an appointment. You have to do it regularly. Um, And you have to break all your tasks down into very small goals and um, accomplish them. And so that book really taught me to basically time block um, Mm. and set aside time, have a big master to-do list, set goals for myself. And so I write about, write slash conduct research about five hours a week, Monday through Friday, early mornings. Um, And it's amazing what I'm able to accomplish during that time, just because the time is so focused. And so I do that outside of my regular work day. It's very early in the morning. Um, And then I work a regular day and I'm not thinking about research. I'm not thinking about Um, I mean, I'm always thinking about research, but, uh, you know, in what I have to do because it's that specific time. Um, So that book. And then uh, if I could throw another one out there, uh, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport, um, not a behavior analyst. He's a a PhD at MIT. His background Mm -hmm. is in software engineering or something, but he he has made a, a big name for himself in sort of the time management. Uh, arena. Mm. And he wrote a book called Deep Work. And essentially, it's the idea of time blocking, basically accounting for every moment of your day, not leaving yourself to uh, freely roam the internet or, you know, do your dishes or whatever, but really accounting for that. And so I've sort of added that onto my writing and my research schedule. Um, and so now my, my work days look like that too. And so long story short, actually I'm able to accomplish quite a bit in a normal work week. I don't work weekends and I don't work very late at night. Um, but uh, it's because of this very focused, uh, every minute of the day is accounted for <laughs> and there's specific time for research. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's just, and that's sort of the self-management year. You don't have anybody looking over your shoulder saying you better be working No, not at all. And, you know, with the research stuff, it's all extra. And it's, uh, there's, there are no goals for me to do research. Nobody's, if I stopped doing it today, nobody would know except for me. Um, So yeah, it's all out of uh, passion and interest and wanting to contribute. Yeah. And are those five hours that are that sort of scheduled for you, are those sacred? Do you have those in your calendar and nothing can be scheduled over that? Or what does that look like for you? I do. I do have them in my schedule. Nothing um, can be scheduled over them, but they're early. They're at 5 a.m. Wow. So nobody is asking to meet with me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And I love the, the two recommendations. I'll put sort of a link to those. I'll find those in Amazon, link to those in the show notes for the listeners to have easy access to. Thank and I love you. that yeah. you're sort of going a little beyond our sort of traditional authors that we look at about these things. I mean, Skinner's got stuff on productivity, but let's go beyond that and look at what other people are talking about. That deep work is interesting. I haven't read that yeah, I recommend it. And he's got a little planner um, that mm. goes along with it that I use religiously. And, you know, like I said, this stuff is not stuff that will be unfamiliar to behavior analysts. When you read these books, everything in them are is very behavior analytic. They're calling it a task analysis, but that's essentially what he's talking about, right. you know. Um, and so it will come so naturally to behavior analysts and uh, it's very different than I think the approach that a lot of people take, which is just, I'll get to it when I get to it or these big chunks. Yeah. Um, and, and I, it's, like I said, it's amazing how, 
accomplished you can become with a small commitment of time as long as it's focused time. And that makes sense. And I think we see that across disciplines. I recently listened to a podcast that had Jerry Seinfeld on talking about how he writes. And he yeah. said the same thing. He's got his sort of short periods of time that he has scheduled. And he has all these little tricks that are, when we get down to it, pretty intuitive and make a lot of sense. And yeah, Jerry Seinfeld isn't a behavior analyst, but what he's doing and what he's been able to accomplish across his career should speak to all of us. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And we talk about this in the article. Um, but you know, uh, time is a barrier. Sorry if I'm getting a little bit ahead of our yeah. discussion, but time is a barrier. And I tell people who come to me who say, I want to do research. You're not going to wake up more one morning and suddenly say, I have time. <laughs> I have time to explore all my interests and read and write it. It's never going to happen. So you have to make the time. Um, and you know, I'm in a unique position. I don't think practitioners are going to be writing five days a week and you don't have to, um, right. you know, but if you do one or two little small chunks of time and you put those on your schedule, that's all you need, you know, and, and those tasks could be as simple as I want to get more familiar with some of the literature on a, a particular topic, right? You start, you start writing by reading or, you know, right. I want to schedule a meeting with somebody to talk about an interesting idea. And so just getting started that way probably you should do it in the, in the time where you're most busy to prove to yourself <laughs> that you can do it. There right. is time. That's all it takes. Um, it's, it's one of these things that is, um, uh, simple, but not easy. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. And I love your point about, we're never going to have the time if we're not doing it consistently. If, if you're waiting for that, that week where you're going to have 20 hours where you can just 100% focus on research, the reality is that's not going to exist for most people. Right. And so, yeah, doing it consistently throughout. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of people who talk about productivity, talk about even if you did have 20 hours to do it just full time and focus on that straight, it's probably going to be less productive and a, and a less high quality that's right. product. In that's right. Many cases. Yeah. And so that's right. Really, really helpful advice there. I think a lot of the listeners are, are going to love that and want to read more about that. So I'll be sure to, to link to that. So I wish I could honestly just interview you about your personal habits because this <laughs> is really cool conversation. But yeah. I do want to get into the paper because there's right. also so much good information involved with that paper. And, and to me as a, as a researcher and as an academic and someone who tries to do practice on the side, seeing how all that sort of melds together into this paper is so inspiring and so helpful. And so I'm really excited to talk about it. Okay. I guess to begin with, do you want to give us a, a little summary of, of the paper? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jessica Wanico, my co-author and I, um, were really interested in understanding some of the barriers associated with conducting applied research. And we knew they existed. We knew that practitioners were interested in conducting research, but we didn't have a whole lot of insight into why they didn't other than just out of casual conversations with people and them describing to us why they weren't um, producing research. And I also, um, I had started to deliver a version of this topic topic uh, at some conferences and had people coming up to me saying, oh, that's interesting. And so we were trying to come up with an idea. She was a postdoc at the time and, you know, they're required. I had them writing. I required them to write something. And uh, she wrote many things over the course of her time with us, but um, he was, and this idea came up and we said, well, let's understand it a little bit better. And there was a recommendation in an article that was published in 2015 by Kelly and colleagues mm -hmm. uh, that this could be a possible research area to conduct a survey or to better understand the barriers associated with applied research. And so we said, let's do it. Nice. And sort of in the paper and a little bit in our introduction, we've talked about that research practitioner gap. And certainly that's a one of the main areas we're targeting in this podcast overall, but could you describe what that research practice gap is, what that means? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you can see the gap by, it can be bi-directional, right? You can see it through practitioners not integrating the latest research findings into their work, um, which is common. I, I am guilty of that. Uh, it's a lot, there's a lot to keep up with. And sometimes I am doing something and realizing, oh, there's a, a, a better way to do this, or, um, you know, something has changed about our literature that should guide my practice differently. Um, but then you can also see it um, through, uh, um, uh, the opposite. So the the individuals who um, are uh, implementing procedures that don't have um, uh, empirical support. So we've got this innovative idea, but there's not research to support it, um, but we're doing it anyway. And so um, it exists. It exists in every field. That was kind of the cool thing about doing the, the study. We did a, a search on other areas. And if you just look up research to practice gap, you see it across all, all fields. Um, and you see people addressing both sides of it, mostly the side of trying to get practitioners up to speed on the literature to, to use best practice. And so our study was a little unique in that it was addressing the opposite. Let's get practitioners to actually conduct research around some of these really cool things that they're doing um, that that could really inform our literature. Well, that makes sense. And, you know, we'll talk perhaps a little bit about some of the things that may contribute to the research practitioner gap. But given that it's sort of bi-directional, there's two components there, it would sort of make sense that if you really address one side of that, if it's the, if part of the problem or the lack is practitioners not themselves doing research and, and therefore not also not implementing sort of evidence-based or most recent evidence-based practices, that if you can sort of target one of those things, we might see some carryover to the other, other side of that. And so mm-hmm. I love this paper and that it's exploring that topic in depth. So what are some of the components that seem to, to lead to this problem? Um, so, uh, oh, well, uh, the components that lead to the research to practice gap. Yeah. Uh, gap. Um, well, I'd say that on the practitioner side, so when we talk about practitioners who are trying to integrate literature uh, into their practice, yeah, obviously some basic things like time, you know, I don't have time to read the literature. I think interpretation sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I even read an article. I'm like, what did they do? How am I supposed to use that? Yeah. And um, they can be a little bit confusing. And then um, access to literature. So Karin Briggs wrote an article that we reference in our article several years ago. It's a little dated, but it still has some really meaningful information in there about how to access the literature and recognizing that as a practitioner, you have an ethical requirement to continue to read and educate yourself, but it's difficult um, and sometimes very costly to do so. Um, and so I think that that's a component that really can uh, lead to the gap. Uh, and then on the practitioner side, uh, we had, uh, you know, actually practitioners conducting research, we identify a lot of those um, components in the paper um, and talk about them. So I'm nice. sure we'll get, yeah. Yeah. So to get into the, the paper and the survey you did, you, you started off the paper, you did a survey looking at some variables and you targeted BCBAs as well as BCBADs or who was exactly targeted in the survey? Uh, yeah. Every, uh, BCBAs, BCABAs and BCBADs. And you had a total of how many? 834. <laughs> amazing. Isn't yeah, that amazing? That they is amazing. Our field. I, I just think we did not expect to have that many people complete the survey. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I do complete these surveys sometimes, but sometimes I'm a little <laughs> busy and I delete them and people didn't delete it. They, that's a big response rate. We were stoked. Yeah. That's amazing. How, how do you think you did that? I've, I've personally done surveys before and I have not gotten that response rate. So how, I mean, how I, oh my gosh, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I, maybe it's just an appealing topic. Yeah. I think people care about it, honestly. And so yes. if you care more about something and, you know, somebody is trying to understand it a little bit better, you may be more apt to, to complete some information for them. That makes sense. And I'm sure if it came through the BACB's email blast, I may have completed it. I kind of lose track of the things, but <laughs> There's I'm sure a lot of if them. it's designed well... <laughs> and it's succinct, I'm sure you also get sort of more completions as well. Yeah. Now, for the, for the listeners, I highly recommend just going into the paper and looking at all the tables that Amber has created and looking at the sort of stats on the results of this, because it's organized in a super, super efficient way, and it's really easy to look at, and it's incredibly interesting. I obviously can't 
bring that visual into podcast form here. And so, Amber, do you want to maybe just highlight some of the more interesting results or stats that you found from that survey? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it was interesting. The participants, there were a lot of them. And the primary profile is what most of us probably think think of when we think of the profile of BCBA in our field, they were mostly BCBAs, less than five years in practice, serving children with ASD, no surprise, they're working across a variety of sized organizations. So, so those were the folks that we were talking about. And, you know, we, we looked at kind of two big categories. We wanted to know what a, what about the organization? What's happening in the organization, you know, from everything from uh, the size of it to the specific information about supportive research endeavors? Mm. And then we want to know a little bit about the people, the practitioners, the respondents, um, specifically about their involvement in research, their interest, uh, the kinds of barriers that they, they identified. So yeah, to highlight a couple of things, I think one of the interesting things was that a lot of people indicated that the opportunity to conduct research does influence their long-term commitment to an organization. The majority that of thought that was so interesting. I think that's really, really interesting. And we suspected that, um, but we didn't realize the percentage would be as high as it was mm-hmm. and that it would, you know, and that we would see those results. And so basically we have practitioners telling us this is important. Yeah. You know, this is something I care about and I, I am willing to stay with an organization for the long term if I'm given these opportunities. Interestingly, that the survey also showed that it didn't influence their job choice, mm. but I think that's because they don't have a job choice right now. <laughs> I yeah. think that's because they, you know, it's not that you have all of these choices of places to work for and all of them offer research opportunities. Most people don't know if they do it sort of a sidebar. It's like, right. well, kind of, sort of, yeah, maybe. And so while it's not influencing their choices around jobs right now, they are thinking about it for the long term. And I I hypothesize that if people can get connected with an organization that can carve out even just a little bit of this type of opportunity, that you would see higher higher retention um, of those employees uh, who are interested, which is majority. <laughs> which in and of uh, itself makes this article so valuable in the sense that you know turnover is such a huge problem in human services, and the idea that hey, if you want to maintain high quality employees wanting to stay at your your organization you should really be creating you know research opportunities of course other professional development opportunities along with that but these are the things that people are ultimately seeking for long-term employment so just just that one stat alone is so interesting it's so interesting and you know it it's tricky because um i've been in this business for a while and i've seen the this, the autism ABA industry change, you know, there are a lot of private equity backed companies. We're one of them. I think that people think that you, you, in order to have people conduct research, um, it's going to cost money. Um, it's, it's going to cost money in terms of their time and it's going to take away from the clinical work that they're doing. And I really don't think that that's the case. I mm-hmm. think there's a little bit of that, but I think you can do a full-time job and be a great practitioner commit a little bit of time on the side to something that you're interested in on the writing and sort of data organization side, and that it doesn't have to cost tons of money for an organization to do. I really believe that. And so I think when you see organizations shy away from it, they're just not thinking about it in the way that, you know, you and I are talking about it, which is everything you do every day could be a research study. Yeah. (laughs) If you think about it that way. Truly. And mm-hmm. when you're talking about, so if, if what I'm doing as a clinician, most of it I could be collecting data on and potentially turning into a research project that's shareable to some level and really to like write it up, I only need to carve out really a couple of, t- uh, a couple of hours maybe per week. I mean, for, for you, you said you have five hours per week. Let's assume that most clinicians don't need to be quite as productive as Amber Valentino and just want to do a, a you know a paper here and there. They don't need to have quite that amount of time, 
when they can still ultimately contribute to the field in, in very meaningful ways. You really could. I know I sound like a motivational speaker in some ways. <laughs> you I, are. I really, it really is achievable. And of course, you know, it's not, it's, you're not going to come out of the gates and be this perfect writer. And, right. um, you know, the, it is not, it is not something that comes naturally. Technical writing is a little bit difficult, but you know what? My first papers were not very good. Um, and I'm sure the people editing them were like, Oh God, help her. You know, <laughs> Yeah. And so you start somewhere, but your behavior, you have to, you have to engage in behavior in order for it to get shaped. Right. And then you get shaped through the editorial process. And, um, you know, some of my early work, uh, majority of w- w- which got rejected was some of the, the most formative work that I did because the AEs and the reviewers were so wonderful about giving me feedback and, you know, that, that shapes your behavior over time. So, so yeah, there's a skill set involved, but you're not going to develop the skill set until you start, until you start engaging in behavior and yeah, a couple hours a week to start, start doing right. it. Well, yeah. yeah and I, I don't want to get on uh, too big of a tangent here related to some of the, the data you found, but just on the writing piece alone, do you have any suggestions for, for people who are looking at becoming better sort of technical writers? Read. Yes. <laughs> read. read. Yeah. I think that's the best thing you can do. You just read a lot and you start to pick up on different styles of writing and what you like, what you don't like. But I think people sometimes dismiss that as a prerequisite to being a good writer and it's critical. Um, And then sometimes you just imitate. I mean, I did that very early on in my career. I didn't know how to write a methods section, you know, other than my (laughs) dissertation, which I don't think really counted because it was way too long. Um, I just, I looked at how did other people write this? And, you know, I just sort of took that structure and said, okay, well, here's my study. And, you know, you start to imitate the structure and the, the, the components of a study, and then you start to develop your own style. So yeah, that's my number one suggestion. Yeah. I love that. And you kind of mentioned when you were talking about your experience, you really have to try to accept the idea that you're going to get some critical feedback. You may end up getting some rejections along the way. But if you take that constructively and you identify sort of some of the weaknesses in your writing or design or whatever it may be, it's ultimately a learning opportunity. And through multiple iterations of that, you know, you can potentially be in a situation where you are able to publish more successfully. I personally, when I finished at Western Michigan University, where I completed my PhD, the first five papers I submitted to be published or to be reviewed were rejected (laughs) five in a row bam 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 and it was brutal it really really was and I had you know existential crisis of am I over this am I just done trying to do this and I persisted and then I had five papers in a row accepted so it's just you have to go through (laughs) and I'm sure I'll have many 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 more rejections in my life I have you know no no I no um idea or no thoughts that I'm going to have this continuation of of that level of success but the point is uh, take those rejections take that critical feedback use that improve your writing and and put yourself in a well, I'm certain you will continue to have that kind of success. Um, that's absolutely right. And, you know, your behavior has to be very resistant to extinction. And I think that's very important. Uh, in the talk that inspired this paper, I, I talk about this a lot where you have to experience the contingencies. Um, and some of those contingencies are positive reinforcement. And so it's really a joyful experience for me. Um, I try and get clinicians out there presenting posters Mm. and presentations, because even if that's not a publication, it is thrilling to be able to stand up in front of a room, maybe a little scary, um, but, you know, uh, stand up in front of a room or have, I I remember we had some clinicians presenting at Calaba several years ago and a really well-known behavior analyst stopped by their paper and they were, they were just I mean, they couldn't believe it. They were starstruck. <laughs> he stopped. He asked questions. And, and those, when you have those experiences, that's when it creates the, I can stand five paper rejections. Um, yeah. I don't know about you, but I remember the very first paper I ever published. It was in 2011. 
And um, I looked at that. I looked at it forever. It was. I don't mean, it wasn't even in a journal that anybody reads. But <laughs> I, was, I was like, my name is on that paper. Yeah. That is my name. Yeah. And so I think ex- experiencing that part of it can really help you persist, like you did. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you got to have faith in, and that your work's going to produce fruitful outcomes. And you got to kind of build the tough skin, and it takes practice. I mean sometimes reviewer feedback and an editor feedback can be a little difficult. And for me, if, when I get a paperback with some edits on it or some suggestions, I look at them, I read them, and then I don't think about them or do anything with them for one day. I'll mm-hmm. read it. I'll go, okay, this is what they say about my paper. And I have to put it away, sort of let it sink in <laughs> and yeah. then go back to it and then look at it. And then it's typically a little bit easier for me. Well, and you know, this is a beautiful thing about our field for anybody who has ever published outside of behavior analysis um, or reviewed for a journal, we are really detailed. We are very thoughtful about our process. And so the kind of feedback you get in behavior analysis is very different than the kind of feedback in other areas. And so we should embrace that as this wonderful opportunity to learn from these amazing people in the field um, for free. (laughs) You know, it takes your time, but uh, that's it for free. People are going to give you their, your advice and you're going to learn from that, which is really cool. Well, that's an amazing way of viewing it that ultimately this is free education that you're getting when you're submitting papers and getting rejections with some, some constructive feedback, or you're getting paper, you know, ultimately accepted, but you've got to make some revisions. You're, you're getting to learn from these amazing people in the field for absolutely free. So I love that. I didn't mean to take us too far on uh, down a different road here. So I'll push (laughs) us back in uh, into the survey results and and see if there's any more sort of large pieces of that that are interesting. Highlights. Yeah. So we talked about the characteristics of the organization and this idea that, you know, people are uh, influenced uh, by their ability or opportunities to conduct research. Um, and But then you get into the characteristics of the respondents or the practitioners who were um, completing the survey. And a lot of people said that they hadn't participated in research, which wasn't a huge surprise. Um, for those people who had participated, most of it was conference presentation. Mm. Um, you know, this is something I, I wish I would have, we would have asked a little bit more about, um, because I'd be very interested to know exactly what they're presenting at conferences. Cause it doesn't seem like those people had, a lot of research experiences. My guess is maybe it was somebody else's research or more of a general talk about something their organization was doing, which are which those things are great. Um, but it was interesting to see that that was the majority of the research experience was um, presenting at conferences. Um, and yeah, I mean, people are interested, right? They wanna they wanna present, and then we go into talking about. Uh, barriers uh, and identify some of those, which weren't terribly surprising. Uh, we we looked at um, several areas, but the most notable ones were time, research mentorship, and then opportunity. Hmm. Um, and then just uh, probably the final highlight was looking at the importance of conducting research, just how many people were identifying it as important to them. And a lot of people were, uh, very few people, so that wasn't important at all in their lives. So, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, looking at that and comparing it to some of my experiencing, some of my students who graduate and, and, and get jobs doing practice in the field or people I knew from grad school, it seems to be consistent with, with what we sort of see or what I've seen, which is when people go into practice, if they get to do any research, it's primarily focused on maybe doing posters or things like that at conferences, which is a really amazing experience, um, but also somewhat limited in, in terms of the sort of range of research opportunities that really exist beyond that. Mm-hmm. And looking at that stat in particular, it was around like 80% said that, I think said something along the lines of their their jobs said that they would give them opportunities to present at, at conferences or that would be embedded in the job to some capacity. Um, and if I'm understanding that piece correctly, looking at about 80% of organizations said that they would support that looking further down at some of the results, it doesn't look like they actually provide the resources to do that. So I, to my understanding, and tell me if I'm reading into this incorrectly, people are accepting jobs from organizations that are saying, hey, we'll support you presenting at conferences and things like that. 
but then not necessarily backing that up. Having the infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Because related to that, um, a big, big majority of people said that their um, organizations didn't have any connection to an IRB or an RRC. (laughs) So um, yeah, I think it's one of those things. I mean, you know, recruiters in our field are great and they, they want to get you, you know, and, and I mean, in their defense, there probably are these opportunities like we've talked about, like, yeah, sure. Go represent the company. And maybe there's some interesting work that we're doing as part of our clinical service delivery. Uh, But yeah, then I think when people get in the infrastructure, isn't, um, set up to really support it and you get lost in your job. Um, and the jobs that we have are difficult. People are busy, you know? And so the last thing you're thinking about at that point is research, even if it was, a um, an area of interest for you when you took the job. Yeah. Well, and I love the point you make about the IRB, right? 80, around 80% saying, okay, you can have the opportunity to present at conferences, but then uh, many don't have any connection to an IRB. So how in the world are you planning to do research? And so that point is something after reading this paper that I actually plan to use when, when teaching my students is one of the things I do, I focus on and part of my ethics classes, selecting ethical workplaces. And if you're going to go to an interview and they're saying, oh, research opportunities, this and that, it's a pretty simple question to ask. Oh, do you have one? Yeah. Do, do you have an IRB? Are you connected to an IRB? And they say, no. Okay. Well, you know, some of their, some of their statements about doing research may not be entirely true or, you know, it might be a little yeah. overly optimistic. Yeah. And, uh, uh, LeBlanc, Petter's daughter and, uh, Nosik wrote an article about how to set up an RRC and an or, a human service organization it was published in BAP a couple of years ago. I highly recommend that um, for anybody who's on the job search or uh, anybody who's in a position like mine or similar that you just in, are interested in setting something up. Um, it's not as difficult as you would think. It does take some time and it does take um, really nice people in the field who are willing to sit on your board and right. um, support those efforts, but those people exist. And, you know, um, our RRC, the commitment uh, is not huge, uh, you know, it varies depending on the year and what's going on, but we're talking a couple of times a year meeting um, to go over projects and get them started. Because, you know, you're not in applied work, the pace is not fast. (laughs) You know, you have a couple of projects going, you get those projects going, you don't need to be having you know, research dissertations approved every month. I mean, you know, you're, you're moving at a pace that's really compatible with um, your clinical work. And so the commitment from the RRC should match that. Nice. And we talk about, or you talk about, I should say, in the paper, you talk about some of the primary barriers that you sort of pull from the survey and get into recommendations. So what, what are those primary barriers that you identified? Yes. So the first one is time. (laughs) (laughs) We already already talked a little bit about that. Um, You know, and I, again, I think you're not going to find the time. Um, It's, it's not going to exist. It's not going to just open up one day. And so you have to make it. And this is what Paul Sylvia talks about in that, how to write a lot of how to write a law book. Uh, Just you make the time, you commit to it, you treat it like any other appointment, you protect it. um, And you have small manageable goals and and you just get into this rhythm. And so um, I I ask all of the people who are interested in research, I have a a very small team right now um, to read that book. And to talk about, okay, what are you going to do? What's your schedule look like? And, you know, I'm not forcing them. This is all volunteer, (laughs) but they they start to develop ideas about, well, I could write, um, you know, Thursday nights from six to eight. Uh, Okay, great. That's where we start then. Right. Um, So you have to make the time. Part of that speaks to just a a healthy, productive culture, right? Mm -hmm. When we see our coworkers are doing research, being productive in that area, we go, yeah, that's doable for me, but it can be perhaps difficult for people who are in an organization completely trying to change that culture or sort of be the pathfinder yeah. in that sense. When yeah. we talk about time, from, from my perspective, I see sort of two issues with time, which is writing anything that you've done, right? Which is a whole you know, animal in terms of writing introductions and then summarizing your methods and your results and that kind of stuff. But also 
sort of the, I don't know if you want to call it like the proactive time it takes to sort of think about a project or design Mm -hmm. it or to recruit people to collect IOA and and sort of those things. And so can you speak about that and your perspective on that? Yeah, absolutely. And we, uh, we sort of make that divide in our paper too. There's, you know, there's the writing and there's the thinking piece. There's also the data collection piece. Right. Um, so I kind of would add a third, I think, to your list. And so, yeah, so you've got, you know, there is there is time for for writing and reading and sort of the the, the independent work that needs to happen in order for a manuscript to come together. Um, and that's something you can carve out on your own time when you can make it work. Um, and then the uh, I'll address the data collection piece and then I'll address yours, which is the planning and organizing and IOA and things like that. Right. You know, the data collection, my recommend, I have two recommendations. One is integrated into your practice as much as you can. Um, I uh, have a couple of examples. Um, I don't think I have them in the paper. The paper was just too short, but in this presentation that I give on the topic about how I went into something thinking it was going to be just a pure clinical consult that turned into a research study, but I was, I was treating the issue. I was treating the clinical issue. Um, An example of this is we uh, back in 2018, published a study on the pace of eating with mm. a consumer, an older consumer, uh, me and Linda page rates, and uh, did some manipulation of fading. It was very interesting, but um, it's I was kind of surprised it got published in Java, <laughs> I guess. I, I wasn't, but I didn't go into that planning for it yeah. to be, you know, uh, but it did turn into a very interesting and it addressed the client's problem beautifully. I mean, it, you know, so um, if you can do that, I think that's the way to manage that time piece is that you're already doing the clinical work. Right. Just put the structure to your clinical work um, because even if it doesn't turn into a research study, guess what? The things yeah. that we do in research are also really good for clinical practice, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Exper- good experimental design, IOA. These things are not specific to research. They're good practice. And right. so even if you never do anything with that data set, you serve that client well, and that's what matters. Absolutely. So there's that time piece. And then, you know, you, I, I consider all of those other things you described, IOA, coming up with ideas, um, as a part of sort of the writing piece, there are things you need to sit down and do, you need to put them on your list. And so there are some times where the things on my to-do list are um, brainstorm, sit down with a blank word document and come and flesh out this idea for a protocol on X, Y, Z, or sometimes it's data uh, aggregation and analysis. And so, you know, if you have your beautiful task list, you have all of the, you know, put things on it, put them all on it. Um, That's, that's how I consider all of those, those uh, pieces just to be a part of that time that you've set aside um, to, to do research. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially when, you, when you're talking about really the quality of the services we're providing. IOA is not reserved for research by any stretch of the imagination. That's about increasing the trustworthiness of the measures that you're producing for clinical work or for research. If we're doing clinical work, I certainly hope we've got data that we can trust, right? And IOA yeah. is certainly going to help that and exactly. experimental design. Exactly. We, experimental designs are meant to demonstrate the effectiveness ideally of an intervention on uh, behavior of interest, right? For the most part. And so that's not something that should be reserved for, for research projects. That's the thing that you need to be doing to verify your assessment process or your treatment process is effective for your clients and demonstrating that. So it's really in many ways, no extra time because you really yeah. should be doing that proactively <laughs> as part of your clinical service. And then, you know, being a little intentional in, in how you write it up. And so yeah. that's the time piece. Oh, that's sorry, the time piece. No, and that. I was just going to say the other thing I touch on, we touch on in the article is also be flexible about the things that you are interested in doing. Um, not everything has to be uh, completely database, right. you know, or if it is, maybe it is survey research. Right. Um, and so there's certainly this element of I'm, I'm doing some applied work, I'm practicing, I'm collecting data, but there's also literature reviews and, um, you know, all sorts of practice papers, best practice papers, yeah. uh, things that would take some time and research, but aren't 
dependent on you know a client who is sick or you know moves across the country or you know uh, you know whatever they change providers something happens so there's also flexibility there i think in what practitioners can grasp onto in order to have that research experience absolutely and so time is one piece. What were some of the other major barriers? Lack of mentorship. Mm. So this was, I, what was I surprised by this? I was a little surprised by this, but not. Can you, can you be surprised and not surprised <laughs> at the same time? Um, it makes sense. I don't know that a lot of organizations are necessarily have the leadership profile that would lend itself to mentoring and supporting a lot of people in applied research. And so my guess is a lot of people join organizations and there's just not somebody there that they can call and say, how do I do this or what's going on? Um, But then I also think a part of it is just the lack of, how do I say this? The connections in our field and how do I reach out to this person and say, I need some support or I want some mentoring and the thing I would say to leaders in our field is um, mentor people, do it uh, <laughs> and do it spontaneously and do it in a way that supports them and their efforts. And there are arrangements that can be made to support this. And so I've had several relationships over the years with people where we have been able to offer them a very beautiful participant pool for their study in exchange for some, um, you know, mentorship and, and ideas. So mm-hmm. uh, for us, for several uh, uh, years, Dr. Anna Petter's daughter was working with several of our clinicians on some really interesting stimulus-stimulus pairing um, stuff. Um, we have the participants, right? We just have some eager clinicians who are thrilled to meet with Anna Petter's daughter mm-hmm. and learn from her about an area that she is an absolute expert in, you know, but the arrangement works very well. And so I, I say to people, if you have that knowledge, support our workforce, um, but do it knowing that you're probably going to get something out of it too. <laughs> you know, right. it's not just a donate your time and um, help these other people figure out what your needs are. And, um, you know, you can be helpful too, to, to them and they can be helpful to you. Well, that makes sense. And it's not as if people who are, you know, reaching out to people to mentor them, it's not as if they're mentoring them on research that is irrelevant to their interests or their career, right? If you're mentoring somebody, you're probably then, you know, ultimately recruiting help for your own research sort of interests and an agenda. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then the last one, the last barrier uh, that was, well, we we identified the top three. And the the final one that we talked about was lack of opportunity. Mm. Uh, And I... This, this part of the paper was a little hard to write because it, I, it feels a little bit like a duh moment. <laughs> of course, that's what you would do. But I, I think you if you don't have the opportunities in your organization, I do think you have to create them. Um, right. Or maybe you find an organization who offers them. Uh, but I think creating them is going to be the easiest way to get there in the short term. And establishing even just something as simple as a little reading club or um, something that you can do to carve out those opportunities. But that was a a big barrier for folks. You know, I'm interested. uh, Maybe I have a little bit of support, but there's just no opportunity where I am. Well, I like that idea of the reading club. I think I've had, you know, a lot of people reach out to me as a director of an ABA graduate program who are interested in collaborating in research and, you know, oftentimes I try to try to take people up on those offers. And, and more often than I, I also encourage people to either create or join journal reading clubs or even book reading clubs related to behavior analysis. And it's surprising to me how sort of little interest, honestly, I get in something like that, mm-hmm. especially considered one of your earlier suggestions, which is one of the best ways to be able to write research is to read it. And you know, to be honest with you, sometimes I feel like people are trying to s- skip that step to some yeah. capacity sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, you got to be able to, to read research fluently. You've got to be able to sort of build that, that research foundation understanding in t- certain areas before yeah. you can research super productively. And I know it may not be as, as sort of, sort of glory filled or sort of cool sounding to go, yeah, I've spent time reading research. It's like, well, are you doing it or not? But you've got to you've got to build that foundation first, in my opinion. 
You do. Um, it, we have a small, you'll appreciate this, a small group at Trumpet. We're called the Nerds, um, <laughs> which stands for New Exciting Research Development Squad. The nice. Nerds. Yes, I came up with that in the shower. <laughs> and um, it's a group of eight clinicians across the company who are just volunteering their time. They want to do research. And it's interesting. The research group is, is very different than some of the things we did early in Trumpet's days, but it's because we've evolved and we've changed as a group too. And so it's um, a little less about like, what is the project? Where is it? And more about this is a community of people who want to support your research efforts. And everybody's kind of at different places. And a lot of people are doing exactly what you just described. They've identified that they don't have a lot of knowledge on a topic that they're interested in and they're reading. And so their goals are to read. And some of them set pretty aggressive goals for themselves to read multiple articles a week. Um, some people are doing one article a week, but um, that's exactly what they're doing. And it's another one of those things that, you know, you just have to make the time for it. And you have to have this in your schedule as a priority. And it's amazing. You'll get to a point where you, um, you know, you've read the majority of ethics articles that are out yeah. there or articles on supervision. And so um, I always tell people to be active readers too, when you're reading, make notes and, and because mm -hmm. you're not going to remember an idea, but you're, when you're reading that article, okay, what, what did they say in the discussion about an area of next step or what came to your mind? Uh, what questions did you have? And when you write those things down and you're done, it, quote unquote, done, <laughs> at least with the set that you've set up for yourself to read, you'd be amazed at how many research ideas that you have. And now you're also educated on the topic, which is really cool. Yeah, I love that idea. And I like that, especially the piece about the active reading. This is silly, but when I when I first started reading research articles, I had this thing about not wanting to uh, like leave any trace on them, even on like a PDF form. I didn't want to put highlights and I didn't want to put comments on it. I had no idea why. I wanted to leave it clean. <laughs> but then I, and again, this is silly, but I read a, a biography of John Adams, which by the way, isn't my favorite president, but that's an aside. But when I read about his retirement and when he retired, he would read books and he would argue with the author <laughs> in the books. He would write in the margins arguing and saying, this is a ridiculous idea or whatever, and, and create these arguments with authors and sort of had this dialogue back and forth just by reading these books that he, he was reviewing and things. And so I sort of took that up and started doing that in the research articles I was reading where I, I would love that. Decide, what are you talking about here? As <laughs> if I'm interacting with the author and sort that. of have this conversation. Yeah, I'm not getting those answers back, obviously, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I think that active form of reading, form of reading really helps yeah. help, help you identify those important pieces of the article and help you explore some of that. I love that. That's so great. <laughs> so those are the primary sort of um, barriers, barriers that you identified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of that? And we've talked a lot about different recommendations sort of throughout, but what are some of some of the primary recommendations that people should should leave this article knowing? Yeah, so um, we offer ideas for solving those primary um, barriers in the article that I, I think give readers some direction. And we've talked about several of those. Um, I touched on this earlier, but I'll, I'll expand on it a bit. And that I, I do think expanding your research opportunities is an important one as well. Mm -hmm. um, just to give you an idea, not too long ago, I was uh, talking with a clinician who had a very strong in interest in the adult and adolescent population. And she kind of knew she wanted to do some research in this area, but wasn't quite sure what. And when I was speaking with her, she had just really sophisticated knowledge about how your clinical practice changes when you work with adults mm. um, and some of the, the differing um, considerations around personal space and legalities associated with mm. um, guardianship. And as I was talking to her, you know, she was thinking, well, maybe I could collect some data on, you know, a 35 year old that did this. And I suggested to her, had you thought about a 
a recommended practice paper because you just spouted off. Uh, I mean, frankly, she told me two or three things I didn't know. And I'm the chief, chief clinical officer, some really great knowledge. And I don't think it ever occurred to her that that was a possibility for, you know, I think she thinks of herself as just a clinician. I'm a clinician. What do I get? Well, guess what? You have a lot more knowledge than probably a lot of people do on this topic. So expand your research opportunities. Um, the other one I'll, I'll say is literature reviews. You know, we were talking about reading, but most of our journals have this. Um, Dr. Angelica Aguirre was a postdoc for us. She's now at the University of Minnesota. She's a, a PH, uh, a, a, an instructor, faculty member there. And um, she decided as her postdoc project, she was going to do a review of all the intraverbal literature um, over the course of a decade, which I said, well, that's crazy. Um, But she did it. It got published in House of Verbal Behavior. But you know what? She also became an expert on the intraverbal um, uh, 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 literature. And so, um, you know, that's something I think people feel that is a little overwhelming, but is very achievable. If you want to read on a topic and you're reading it anyway, right. why don't you try and write a paper on it? You know, yeah. there's outlets for that um, in our literature. Um, what else do I would say? Other, other things. Um, we talked about identifying clinical problems and asking questions within your clinical work. I think that that is a, a big takeaway. Um, one other recommendation and takeaway, I think you have to look at the work that you're doing different mm-hmm. uh, that as being different than what you did as your thesis or your dissertation or any kind of controlled work. And that took me a little while to recognize, but I think you have to consider that things are going to be messy. Uh-huh. People are going to drop out. The data is not going to look beautiful, right. but there's a story to tell there a lot of times. And if you document what you've done, you document the changes, you can describe that to a, to a reader, that's okay. And frankly, I love reading articles like that. I love yeah. reading when things don't go great. And so embracing that variability that natural, naturally comes with clinical practice, I think is very important. And um, uh, that's a, another takeaway. Oh, and then I think our final thing in the paper is be patient. We just mm-hmm. talked, we talked about that long time, five years sometimes, right? I had one paper that from the time I submitted the first draft to when it was finally published was five years. That's extreme, but I use that as an example to make sure people know you're not going to start and then, you know, uh, six months later, see, see your name in lights. It's going to take a while. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I've read, and I don't know that this is true or not, but it, it often takes time once it is published for people to even get a hold of it, begin reading it. And then, you know, for it to even be cited or, or affect practice can take a substantial period of time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Patience lean into that probably quite thin intermittent schedule of reinforcement that is is involved with that process but those recommendations are very very helpful i think they're the the people who listen to this podcast are going to benefit from it and i know i've personally benefited from this conversation for sure before we sort of end i've got two more questions for you brief questions one being within this sort of area of, of publications, of, of bridging that research to practice gap. What do you think needs to happen next for, for publications related to that? To this topic. So that's the question. And then the other question, take on whatever order you'd like, is to the clinicians listening or the people listening who want to get involved with research, what should they do right now? Like after listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, what's the first thing they should do? Okay. So lines of research. Um, You know, I think when there's a topic like this that doesn't have a lot of literature associated with it, um, a survey study is great. That's why we did a survey study too. It's like, you kind of have to get some meat under the topic to really understand it, to create those lines. I, I think it would be really cool. I'm probably not the person to do this, but uh, somebody out there is, I think it'd be cool to look at uh, some of these variables that we've talked about and try to control from them as much as possible on an organizational mm-hmm. level and look at opportunities, you know, somehow defining opportunity for research and connecting it to retention and recruitment efforts. Wow, Somebody yeah. should do that study. I think that would be really cool and would 
potentially provide some data around what we've heard described in the survey, which is how um, the opportunities are influencing long-term career. It would be a, probably a little bit of a difficult study to set up, but I, somebody out there smart can do it. <laughs> um, and then other, whatever other variables there are, right, that we think might be influenced by these opportunities, some of them identified in our paper, um, some of them maybe not. And so that would be interesting looking at just organizationally how these opportunities um, are influencing the variables that, a, that an organization would care about. Um, I also think uh, just models. So, mm. I, you know, I, our paper is great, but you could walk away from our paper saying, but what exactly do I do? <laughs> and so it would be really cool if uh, organizations would do a little bit more publishing around this is how we set it up. This is the framework we have in place. Maybe we should do that. I, I haven't <laughs> put that on my right. I mean, I should do that. We should set that up Super for idea. Trump and share. Um, gosh, there was uh, several years ago, uh, Tim Courtney published a study in BAP that outlined their supervision model and mm. how they think about supervising people in field work. And it really was their company, Little Star, their company's model for how they do this. I thought that was such a cool paper. So as I'm speaking, I'm thinking something similar in the research world, like really, how do you set it up? And yeah. what are the things that are in place so that organizations could replicate that? Um, I think that would be really, really uh, very helpful. Nice. Um, okay. And so, oh gosh, what do clinicians do? What, well, they re read the paper. Yeah, read the <laughs> if paper. you haven't already, read yeah. the paper. And again, um, for the listeners, the tables in the paper alone are unbelievable and really, really interesting. For, for that reason alone, you should get the paper and look at it. I, and I would say, uh, here's my advice. Pick one thing that you can do to get started on your research mm. journey. Just one thing, whether it be buy one of these books that I recommended or um, talk to your boss about your interest. Just one, one very simple thing to get you started, I think, uh, it, it, and that will open the door for what the next steps are. But um, you'll, you'll know those ideas. You'll know exactly what to do. Is it an email? Is it a meeting? Is it a reading a book, purchasing a book, um, reading this article and taking some notes? Uh, you know, there's probably a dozen things that you could do to open up that door, but don't minimize those things and think that they're not important. Um, mm. Even the smallest sending an email or having a conversation is the the, the gate, right? It will get yeah. you through uh, that barrier of getting started and just, just walk away and say, what's one thing I can do today? If I'm one of those 80 some percent people who are interested in conducting research, what's one thing that I can do to get started on that and do it? That sounds, that sounds great. And I think the listeners are going to love that and really benefit from it. So Again, thank you so much for your, your work on this paper and everything you do for the field of behavior analysis. But for this paper especially, I think that people are going to love it. I think people are going to really, really pull stuff from this that's going to be usable and really helpful for them in their careers. I'm so happy. That's exactly why we wrote the paper. So thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this and um, just an honor to be able to talk about the paper with you. All right, before you get too far, just a couple of quick announcements. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Find us and follow us on social media to suggest behavior analysis and practice papers that we should review, and even throw in some questions that we could ask the authors. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Nervaez, and my production assistants, Jesse Perrin, Taylor Reinho, and Beyonce Ferrucci. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.